The thing that impressed me then as now about New York was the sharp and at the same time immense contrast it showed between the dull and the shrewd, the strong and the weak, the rich and the poor, the wise and the ignorant. Those who dominated were so very strong, and the weak so very, very weak, and so very, very many. many. I'm Lynn Miller. And I'm John Modaff, and this is The Unruly Muse. We are talking about the city in the new year 2022. Yes, the city, the place that's not the country. And our teaser that we just read is from one of our greatest American novelists, Theodore Dreiser, who lived from 1871 to 1945. And I was just reading about him that his great theme was the tremendous tensions that can arise among ambition, desire, and social mores. And what is better than that to introduce our discussion of the city? There are lots of places that call themselves cities, which are really just villages with pretensions. Yeah, and in in this show today, we get to talk about our two perhaps greatest cities in terms of size and difference, New York City and Los Angeles. And that brings us to our first song. It's called Old Joe. down to the store and buys himself a copy of the New York Post. Says hello to Raul, who works there. He said, Joe, last night I thought I saw a ghost. Say hello, old Joe. Won't you say hello one more time? Joe heads down to the bus depot. He ain't going nowhere, but he likes the bench. Says hello to the people there, all the bummy old bums and the wenchy old wenches. Say hello, old Joe. Won't you say hello one more time? St. Pat's Cathedral Joe knows it's time for lunch He heads on down to the Delicatessen Gonna get himself a hot dog with onions and mustard Say hello, old Joe Won't you say hello one more time Joe's got a girlfriend She lives in the harbor Stands all day with her hand in the air Joe stands on the shore for a moment, looking through the mist at her beauty. Say hello, old Joe. Won't you say hello one more time? One more time. Thank you for that, John. You're welcome. The city is such a paradox of desire and unfulfillment as we have this kind of lost soul in the city, but I'm curious about your genesis. Well, I was visiting my brother Bob and uh, was wandering around with him and I spotted someone who looked 
different. The person looked comfortable about their business, that they weren't in a hurry, but they weren't dragging their feet either. They were just moving at their own pace. And I got to thinking, well, I suppose that there is someone, maybe that person, who has their routine, and it's part of what makes the day worthwhile for them. But then at the end, as far as the unfulfilled part, he is staring at the Statue of Liberty, which clearly suggests he's still desiring some other kind of freedom more than he has. Maybe satisfaction isn't enough. Well, the city has become a place of desire, for sure, and a place to dream about, and yet also a place that so many yearn to escape. And I I like it in your song that he goes to the bus depot often. He ain't going anywhere, the song tells us, but he goes anyway. He says, Mm -hmm. hello. Um, That's his routine. But yeah, maybe he would like to have a more expansive life. Maybe he'd like to go somewhere. We don't really know. It might be just enough. That's a that's a content human being. And you don't always see big bunches of those walking around in cities. No, people are usually trying to get somewhere, you know, from somewhere to somewhere else as fast as they can, especially in <laughs> New York. That's how it feels. Mm-hmm. When people talk about the decades of their lives, they uh, talk about their time in cities as... Yes. Uh, even identified by the city's name as an an era of life. And I'm sure that's been true for you. What does it mean, though, that a city gets tied up inside us in a way that maybe no other place does? You're absolutely right. I mean, I have certain markers in my life, and some of it is when I lived in Chicago and when I lived in Los Angeles. Those are the two biggest cities I've lived in. But I've lived other places that were nowhere near as complicated as either of those. But the the cities serve as both magnet and marker. You got in, you lived there, and you got out, and lived to talk about it is a marker of uh, an era in your life. But there's that that other side, too, a magnet. Yeah. I, I mean, in both cases, I really enjoyed the time in my life that I was living in both of those two places. And maybe that had something to do with it. It was a very expansive, exciting time in my 20s, Uh, which is always kind of an explosion in anyone's life. Speaking of explosions. Our first poem uh, by Sandy Yanone called Halifax, 1917, Then and Never Again. Let me say a few words about Sandy and the poem that she gave me. Uh, The poem is from a book of poetry by her called Boats for Women. Sandy teaches in Washington State, And she has quite a history with this area that we're going to be reading about. She says, I traveled to Halifax from Southampton, UK in April 2012 as part of the 100th anniversary of the Titanic sinking, a history cruise with other Titaniacs. So she has been occupied by this for some time. Halifax is the closest port to the site of the sinking, and the White Star Line paid for a number of ships to conduct search and recovery of her victims. When we arrived in Halifax, I learned about the 1917 explosion. Because of Titanic and this fire only five years later, Halifax was for many years dubbed City of Sorrow. I've never been able to get the images of this winter disaster out of my head, and at the time it seemed to speak to me about the complications of love and that perfect line of Shakespeare's. 
So that's her intro to the poem. And I, I have to say that when I went to Halifax, the only time I ever did, in uh, 2006, one of the first things I learned about was this very explosion. So it is so absolutely ingrained in the city's lore. Yes. So here is Halifax, 1917. When I contemplate her face as producing that smile. That outward manifestation of her breath. I travel inside my own complicated anatomy. Induce what I can. To give back to this love-scorched earth. What was it that Shakespeare said about love? Love is a smoke and is made with the fumes of sighs. The threat of morning fog inhabiting the cove is why the lighthouse keeper sleeps all night, restless in the tower. But what of that man-made fire that burned the harbor down? Who could have anticipated two, two ships, ships colliding, colliding into, into a, a tirade, tirade like, like that? that? One that conflagrated the properties of fate and stole the air from the lungs of 2,000 lives. In one horrific breath, all of Halifax inhaled smoke and either woke to the nightmarish hot sun, surviving outside their steaming windows, or never broke from sleep. I tell myself this story again. Why? To keep my fire from burning, it's, it's death-defying death lie. Thank you, Sandy, so much for this intriguing and complicated poem. The marker that you talked about is at work here. Something is going on inside of her that she is tying up with and, and weaving together with this tragedy. Yes, and, and the line from Shakespeare brings us into love. So love and death, of course, the two great poles... Eros and Thanatos that we've read about over and over and over are entwined here. I like in the poem, all of Halifax inhaled smoke, referring yes. back to Shakespeare's line, many yes. died, many woke to nightmare. Right. There's something lilting and airy at first about the quote from Shakespeare because the smoke and the fumes, they're just fumes of size and, mm -hmm. and smoke could just be what comes out of someone's mouth every now and then. But when the, when the fumes come from an explosion and when the smoke is from the fire, it completely reframes that line and makes us think maybe things haven't gone well. That's right. And instead of the gentle smoke of sighs, as in lovers, we are comparing it to this earth-shattering, sea-shattering explosion. Well, in the reflection that this poem is on a tragedy, but also how it feels tied up with real life in the present day, there is a, a role for the city as a, maybe a different kind of marker than you were referring to as a historical marker, but more of a, that this place proves what is possible and what can happen. And, and that becomes itself a metaphor for every other form of that that we see in other events. So she mm -hmm. looks at what's going on with herself, but she looks at the city and she knows what happened there. And it's almost as if she can't help but for the two to get tied up together. Well, and because of the density of cities, disasters there assume huge proportions, right? So yes. uh, this, was, this was one of the great naval disasters in history at that time. 
And part of it is because Halifax was such an important harbor. And then the way she connects it in her in her genesis with the Titanic, which came out of Belfast, another great harbor of that era, mm-hmm. we, we get a super loss of life collision reverberation between those two marine disasters. And the line right there, smack in the middle, is the same thing people said after Titanic, and I'm sure they said after Halifax. Who could have anticipated? Right, yeah. Well, when you bring together all of the elements of an explosion, I guess we ought to expect one. And that's how I feel about a city. Maybe that's the exciting thing about it. It's sort of like skydiving with, you know, the chances are pretty good your chute's going to open. But it might not. And in yes. the city, that's you know, so many good things and fantastic things happen that don't happen anywhere else. But also, many of those things are the elements for an explosion. Yes, because the passions run high in a city, too. Mm-hmm. So there, there's there's not just one desire running around the street. There are eight million if you're in New York. Yes. Um, there's clashing ambitions and hopes and dreams and motives. So it's it's an incredible Petri dish for humanity. It sounds like you're talking about... Gertrude Stein's Salon. Our story that I wrote called Words Shimmer is about Paris during the years before and after the First World War. So here we are again in that incredibly fomenting time historically. What I was trying to do with the story, and this is just the last section of it that we're going to read, is to tell the story of the brilliant siblings, Gertrude Stein and her brother Leo Stein, and Alice B. Toklas, who becomes Gertrude's wife. Leo and Gertrude founded their famous Paris salon together at 27 Rue de Fleurou. Alice moved in in 1910, and in 1913, Leo moved permanently out. So it's basically a powerful triangle, uh, which breaks apart, as most triangles seem to do eventually. This section of the story happens right after the end of World War One. Words shimmer. By Lynn C. Miller. Nineteen nineteen, the Great War is over. Americans pour into Paris. Some never leave after they are discharged from the army. As Gertrude says, the men are troubled and unhappy. They are a lost generation. Others also come. They come to write, to paint, to play music. Most of all, they come to experience the great moment that is Paris. It is the beginning of the new world. And they come to 27 Rue de Fleurou on Saturday nights. The paintings still dazzle. There are many new ones, stacked row upon row on the walls. Other things have changed. The salon has a new center. Opinions now flow from Gertrude's mouth. Everybody who writes is interested in living inside themselves in order to tell what is inside themselves. That is why writers have to have two countries, the one where they really belong and the one in which they live really. The circle of young men around her grows and grows. She still listens and laughs under the Picasso portrait. But the uncertain woman who watched Leo explain is gone. In her place is the Sibyl of Montparnasse, who knows about art and life in the Renaissance called Paris. She has begun to call herself a genius. And you, Pablo, she tells Picasso, you are the genius of painting as I am the genius of literature. 
Picasso's reputation, like Gertrude's, continues to grow. Picasso annoyed by all this talk of genius. How can writing be compared to painting? Surveys the room. He notices, among others, the effeminate men, the masculine women. Not men, not women, he thinks, but Americans. In the kitchen, Alice sits with the wives and with the women artists whom Gertrude doesn't talk to. Gertrude talks to some, Marie Lorenzen, Mildred Aldrich, Natalie Barney, Edith Sitwell, but not to others. The kitchen is alive with delicious smells of fresh bread, of fragrant soups. Alice, too, has found her place. The wives listen carefully. For Alice holds the key to negotiating the bohemian pathways of the city. More than ever before, if you want to meet Gertrude, you must ask Alice. If Alice disapproves of someone, that someone does not return. Leo is still in Italy. Alice reflects on the wheel of fortune turning in its random path, favoring some, neglecting others. She sees that Leo Stein, arguably a genius, has somehow missed his moment. Gloire is not to be his. The finger of fame points, improbably, at his younger sister, once so awkward, so shy, and her female lover, a sorceress in Leo's view, a bewitcher of those stronger than herself. Leo has become Gertrude Stein's brother. Leo, thinking Gertrude only his shadow, walked away from the Rue de Fleur. He left his shadow behind. Alice knows that a man who casts no shadow does not really exist. Once so incendiary in intellect, so sure in his enthusiasms, Leo remains a cautionary tale of lost potential, lost horizons. Gertrude, the one planted solidly in the earth, keeps on writing, even when she lacks a public. Alice is her appreciator and her witness. And now, after the Great War, as the world embraces the new, her work slowly gains traction. Gertrude Stein is a symbol of the new century. As she said herself, America created the 20th century, and one American woman created the new literature in the 20th century. Neither Stein was ever modest, but only Gertrude has accomplished what she set out to do. Gertrude has made the Rue de Fleurou her own, hers analysis. For now, the atelier is even more a remarkable place. A space where the present moment is captured and repeated through talk, through the wavering brush strokes on the walls, through the friendships that bloom there. Soon, other literary geniuses will walk through its doors, mature talents like Sherwood Anderson, the young, beautiful, and hopeful like F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, and Juna Barnes. The room cannot contain all of them. But like the light that beams through a Gothic cathedral and bathes its worshippers, it allows the essence of each to shine through. Laughter rings in the atelier. Talk flourishes. But now the pronouncements are Gertrude's. Remarks are not literature. Life is tradition and human nature. When a new way had to be found, naturally we found Paris. Gertrude still wears brown, still sits under her Picasso portrait. The painting stays the same, and more and more her likeness to it grows. Picasso is not surprised at this. When he finished the portrait in 1906, their friends complained, but Gertrude does not look like this painting. She will, he said. Alice wonders about the words she once spoke to Gertrude in the garden. What part did they play? 
She realizes how words can change the world. Once uttered, they root and sprout. They take on a life of their own. They sail into the world and collide with some things, merge with others. They make history. Across the room, Gertrude's eyes find Alice. The two women share a secret smile. Both think, she is my life. Talk surges around them of life and art, war and peace. The room pulses with energy, levitates with living. Words shimmer like ripe fruit. It's so full of flavor and the feel of the place. And even though there's a lot of explicit and implicit conflict and possibly regret and competition, the general feel is very convivial and gregarious and belonging. It was triumphant. Gertrude's salon is where all the Americans who went to Paris between the wars wanted to go. They wanted to be there. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to see and be seen. It was this melting pot of artistic foment, if you can mix those metaphors up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, the city made that possible, the city at that time. And what a great testament of all of these superb talents, not just Gertrude Stein, but all of the others that are named, that they, each one of them, was a mountain unto themselves, and yet they chose to hang out. They saw value in that. And at at the time, I mean, Leo and Gertrude were the first major collectors of many of the Impressionistic and Cubist painters. They hadn't really been seen on our side of the Atlantic. So one of the reasons people started going to the Salon was to see these incredible paintings. Mm -hmm. You know, the Matisses and the Cezannes, the Picassos. They were revolutionary, the paintings. That is, I guess, one of the things that the city offers, even though it's true in the country, I suppose, that there are things that happen that don't happen anywhere else. But the sorts of things that happen in the city couldn't happen anywhere else. Right. I mean, this this renaissance of art that happened in Paris at that time in history was just this modernist explosion, and it needed a big gathering place, and Paris was a big gathering place. So it's not just as crass as people who want to, wanted to sell things knew they could find buyers. That surely was part of it. And then there is just knowing that rubbing elbows with people who think you're strange but admire you anyway is a dynamo for further creation. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of collaboration. Artists who felt stultified here in America because the social climate was pretty strict and there wasn't a lot of mobility in it went to Paris. For one thing, their money went very far in Paris. The American dollar was so strong that, you know, for a few hundred dollars a month, you could buy art and live fairly lavishly. So it was it was like a moment of all kinds of opportunity, including economic. But certainly, if, if you wanted to be inspired and you wanted to see what was new in art, that's where you wanted to go. And literature I include in art. Yes. Well, it just pours out of people in cities, from people tagging trains to that creepy guy whose name I can't remember who used to paint shadows all over New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you would swear you were walking up on somebody and it was one of his paintings. <laughs> and uh, just uh, and, and murals and sculpture informally produced and commissioned all just pile up in cities 
like no other place. And that's one of the great attractions, I'm sure, for artists. They know they will find other artists there in great number. Right. And all the archives, the libraries, the concerts, the art museums. It's a place to go to be jump-started and possibly to make your reputation. Chances uh, go up, I suppose, when you mix it up with the right people. You know what else you see a lot of in cities? Mm. Cats. Cats. And you know, I kind of hear one scratching at the door. Yes, let's take a minute to feed the cat while we hear from T-Bone Kelly. Fantastic. Paris and Babel. London and Tyre. Reborn from the darkness. She'll sparkle like fire. From the folk who throng in Their gardens and towers Shall be blown fragrance Sweeter than flowers Fairies shall dance in The streets of the town And from sky headlands The gods looking down Welcome back, John. Did the cat seem satisfied? Immediate rambunctious crunching. (laughs) Well, that's kind of like conversation, isn't it? Crunching. (laughs) Satisfying crunching. Chewing things up. That's right. Well, this poem that we have by Jack Cooper is a very tasty bit. What can you tell us about it? We have performed another work by Jack Cooper. This one is called Passerby. And he wrote me that he used to walk through the neighborhoods in Los Angeles and see all kinds of different things. So this poem was inspired by an actual garden and a person who kept the garden that he used to walk by on his way to work. Passerby by Jack Cooper. In the neighborhood of broken glass, And broken lives. And empty lots. The old lady in the crumbling house. Who feeds the pigeons in the street. Keeps a garden fit for kings. And passers-by, like me, she'll she'll never never meet. In the neighborhood I hurry through. On my drive to work this spring. Calla lilies, jonquils, tulips, mums. And bird of paradise. Paint the air around this house as if a second sun could rise. As seasons change from rain to dust. The road too hot for pigeon feet. These petals. Stamens. And showy spathes. Never disappoint. Never fade. Never die. As if the season too were were just just a a passerby. Then the part of me that knows all things informs my hurried wishful self this garden kingdom in the hood these blooms that look fantastic are made of nothing more than colored plastic in the neighborhood of painted skies and second suns and different time the old lady in the crumbling house who feeds the pigeons in the street keeps a garden for her dreams dreams, and not for fools. fools Like me, she'll She'll never never meet. So interesting because Los Angeles 
is, I think, an everlasting spirit of dreams. Thank you, Jack, for this. Yes, it is this walk through beauty and appreciation in the context of the city. And even when we find out that the flowers are plastic, that's all right. It's just such a nice message. He appreciated this thing made by a person who he'll more than likely never meet, and it doesn't matter, and they're not for him anyway. Yes, and and we feel that the woman does this for her pleasure and for the birds she feeds Although she must be aware of others passing by and casting glances. It gets you wondering, even if it is just for her dreams, and that could be reminiscences or nostalgia or memorials to people or things or times, or it could just be trying to make the world more beautiful because she knows someone might be looking. But I don't get that sense with this. She's not a show-off. The house is crumbling. But she's got this garden fit for kings. I really appreciate Jack's image of the neighborhood of broken glass and how it harbors this hopeful woman, right? Yes. Even there, this place that could just be a, a you know, a drudge-filled treadmill, he spots this person and she seems to be inspiring to him. And the idea that a crumbling cityscape can still be made beautiful seems to me really important, especially right now when there's such homelessness in our big cities and even our small cities. And beauty is at a premium. We need beauty. Our cities more and more are becoming places people go to for help. Our next song addresses that attraction and appeal of the city, and the song is called Why Not? Ciao. 
liked very much things like why not race toward Bethlehem? Mm -hmm. Why not speak your mind out loud? The sense of society and people not giving other people what they need. I'd love to know your genesis of the song, John. I wanted to find a vehicle to quote William James, which I do in the middle. There are no differences, but differences of degree between degrees of difference and no difference, Mm -hmm. which he is reported to have said while he was on laughing gas partying with some friends. How interesting. Yes. And now whether or not he was gassed when he said it, I can believe he was just by the nature of the observation, but the song grew up around that and this idea that differences are so significant. And one of the things, getting back to the teaser for our show, is that difference between the haves and the have-nots and the weak and the strong. And so the song built up around that, thinking, well, what sort of freedoms could be established if we agreed to do some fundamental things, like speak our mind without shouting or whispering, and sleep with our clothes on if we want, and eat what we want, pretty much do what we want, and also to help other people who need it. And I think that's one of the big draws of the city, because a lot of that happens in the city, and people trust that it will happen in the city. Well, the city gives permission for all kinds of eccentricity, difference, uh, different opinions. Uh, But you're right to go back to our teaser, because Dreiser was very concerned with class, and his great works like Sister Carrie or An American Tragedy were about the classes clashing and, and who wins and who loses, He really brought to the fore the risks and the oppression that exist in the city. And this song kind of is a liberation. It's strange that it came to mind when we established our theme because it's not explicitly about life in the city or people who live in the city. It's more about what could happen there, you know, riding into, or, you know, excuse me, slouching toward Bethlehem by saying, why not race there? Uh, you know, why not run? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that that question of infinite possibility starts with why not. And to me, the city just overflows with that. That's what makes it so screwed up and such a mess. But it also is a place where you don't find charity in greater abundance and cooperation in in its strange forms that we're so used to we barely notice anymore in such abundance. And when you've got seven or eight million people in a few square miles, a lot of getting along is going on. That's right. The city is simply a rich brew. That line about slouching toward Bethlehem is so pertinent right now. Yeats's poem about the center cannot hold, and then the recent death of Joan Didion, whose first great book was called Slouching Toward Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've lost her voice, and she was such a incisive commentator on especially Los Angeles, but human nature, humankind. I wanted to point out that this theme, the city, was recommended to us by one of our listeners, Sarah Cochin. So thank you, Sarah, for this yes. this idea of looking at the city. Good move. We are recording on January 13th, 2022, our first program of the new year. And that date, 13, 
is a bit of a foretelling, isn't it? Yes. So we thought our next show, which will be The Unruly Muse number 13, should be about superstition. Yes. When we first chatted about doing this theme, just a quick bit of research was, do people still not put a 13th floor in office buildings? And That's there's right. A long, there's a long list of buildings, and it would surprise you, that simply don't have a floor 13 on the menu in the elevator, even though there is a floor 13. Mm-hmm. And so superstition runs deep, even now in 2022. Absolutely, perhaps deeper than ever. So we're going to have a ball with songs and stories and poems about superstition next time on The Unruly Muse. Yes, and if you want to check out the show notes, please go to theunrulymuse.net, email us, let us know your thoughts. We're always happy to hear them. Very true. So until next time, this is Lynn Miller. And I'm John Modaff. And this has been The Unruly Muse. <laughs>